Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. In this hour, is being black making you sick? Now, I know that your being black, my being black, can make other people sick, sick of us. But is being black making you sick? It's a powerful and troubling question. Shining an unconventional spotlight, I suspect, on a variety of subject matter. We will wrestle with this query in this hour. Now that we're joined by the founder and CEO of Huddle, Kevin Dedner, who has been on a mission for some years now interrogating this very provocative question, is being black making you sick? Kevin Dedner, good to have you on KBLA Talk 1580, sir. How are you? I'm great, Tavis. How are you today? Man, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I'm delighted to be here, delighted to have you on, delighted to have an hour uh, to wrestle with this very provocative question that is a bit more than whimsical or philosophical, is it not? It is, Tavis. Yeah, it it's, is. it's a deep question, uh, and uh, it's not something that we ask just to have a barroom brawl about or because we ain't got nothing better to do. There's a lot to unpack in this hour. And again, I'm delighted to delighted to have you on. Um, let me start with the backstory, and then we'll work our way into the uh, the epicenter of this um, of this matrix, as it were. Um, for starters, how does a subject, how does a, a a notion, a question, a query like this um, get your attention and demand so much of your time over years? Tavis, you know, before before we go uh, any further, I just want to pause and say thank you for your voice and your leadership. Uh, I have in front of me your book, The Death of a King, and I just want to acknowledge how you put flesh on the bones of, of Dr. King. Mm, but you. even even Dr. King um, was talking about health disparities, and I've spent my entire professional career working in public health and working on health disparities. And, and you know, I had this hypothesis very early on that many of the health disparities that I was interested in solving really came from the root of those health disparities rather was being black and Tavis it wasn't until um, you know I worked myself into a mental exhaustion experience depression myself that the experience of being black and this totality on how it impacts our health became very real to me mm. um, since you mentioned Dr. King let me just pivot ever so gently because I want to get your take on this as one who has spent your career and again as the founder and CEO of Huddle uh, Hurdle I said uh, Hold on, I'm in a hurdle working um, on these uh, on these issues. Um, since you mentioned King, two things come to mind about that text, um, as I recall. Number one, I detail in that book um, something that um, part of part of what made that book a, a bestseller is that there was some new information that we found out in our research and that we put in that book. You read it, so you know where I'm going. What I was able to lay out in that text, uh, Death of a King, was that King himself uh, wrestled with mania. King himself had to deal, certainly in the latter years, with depression. After he gives this Beyond Vietnam speech, April 4, 1967, it puts a target on his back. The whole cosmos shifts against him. The government turns against him. The media turns against him, black and white. Uh, black preachers disinvite him to speak at black churches. He's disinvited to speak on college campuses. His inner circle turns against him. Uh, again, the cosmos sort of shifts against Dr. King. And while people don't know this or want to wrestle with it, King died a lonely man. When they shot him on that balcony, he felt as if the whole world had turned against him. He was persona non grata. He was toxic. There were black leaders who wouldn't take photos with him. King was not the king that we revived and resuscitated 25 years later. 
when we got the national holiday. And I say we, I'm talking now about Credit Scott King, Stevie Wonder, and others who worked to make that holiday real, making him the first African-American to be so honored. But that's how King died on that balcony, feeling that the whole world essentially had sort of turned against him. Um, but he was dealing with mania. Uh, I tell the story in that book of uh, King getting dressed one day to go to a meeting, puts on his suit, uh, tie, whole, whole wardrobe, puts on his hat, walks out the door, and that mania hit him so hard, that depression hit him so hard when he got to the door, he couldn't get out of the room. Uh, he stumbles and nearly falls. His staff grabs him, uh, get him in the bed, gets him back in the bed, fully clothed. He asked to be left alone, and he laid in that bed for hours, and hours and hours and just cried and cried and cried himself eventually to sleep. I tell another story about him being uh, in Mexico one night and at 3 o'clock in the morning they couldn't find him and they found him in his pajamas on a balcony at a hotel just crying his eyes out. Um, there are any number of stories I tell in the book about the mania that King had to deal with. Now, that, that was tough to do, and I took a risk laying that research out because you don't necessarily want to tell folks that Dr. King had depression. That Dr. King had to deal with mania himself. The further part of the story in that book, as you know, Kevin Dedner, is that when King's inner circle started talking about getting him some help, letting him talk to someone, a decision was ultimately made that King would not see a therapist. He would not talk to someone. And the reason for that was they knew that if J. Edgar Hoover found out that Dr. King was seeing a therapist, Lord Jesus, what Hoover would have done with that information, he was Hoover was already sending notes to King's house telling this Negro to kill himself. We're going to get you. You might as well go and kill yourself anyway. So they knew um, that if, if Hoover found out that King was seeing a therapist, um, that um, they would uh, Hoover would use that in ways unimaginable. And so I, I kind of detail that research that I came across, and I talked to people in King's circle and got them to go on the record with me uh, as they had never had, as they had not done before, talking about King's mania. Since you raised it, Kevin, I wanted to put to your, use your phrase, some more meat on the bones, which leads me, having said all that, to this obvious question. Given your work as the founder and CEO of Hurdle and all that you are doing, and even the book you've written, The Joy of the Disinherited, Essays on Trauma, Oppression, and Black Mental Health, how does it strike you when you hear, how do you want others to hear that Dr. King himself had to deal with mania? Well, well, first of all, thank you for detailing that for folks who may have not read the book. And, you know, it, it, I, I would tell you, when you think about Dr. King's life, although it, it, the difference here is he lived a very public life, I think, um, you know, the pathway that he took that ultimately led him to the depression that you're talking about is very similar to um, a path that many black Americans um, take a journey that we all take as well. Mm -hmm. You know, the the life that we're experiencing, the challenges that we face every day, simply because of the color of our skin. Um, ultimately, the first place it impacts us, Tavis, is, is in our physical health. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons that black men have the lowest life expectancy of any population. When you look at black women, even when you add the controls of higher income and higher education, you still see high premature births. And so, the, the, this, the thing that we know very little about is how racism and oppression impacts our mental health. But I think when you look at the life of Dr. King, it's very clear that he was very acutely aware of racism's impact on his people, and ultimately it took a toll on him. And I think the work that you did there, that, that's you know, sort of where I started. You really put flesh on his bones, helping people to understand the burden that he was carrying. But as I said, I think it's a burden that many of us are carrying today. 
Yep, it is a burden that many of us carry. And uh, just to put a final point on this, um, King is assassinated, of course, at the age of 39. And for you history buffs, both Malcolm and Martin, as we're doing a radio play here uh, called The Return on this station uh, on February 28th, both Malcolm and Martin, of course, dead, assassinated at the age of 39. Um, But the autopsy on King's body found that King had the insides of a 65-year-old man. So if that bullet had not caught him, there was no way that the pressure and the stress he was under um, would have lasted much longer. He couldn't have survived um, the pressure he was under forever. He's 39 years old and has the insides, the autopsy reveals, of a 65-year-old man. That's how the pressure was being internalized by Dr. King. I digress on that point. The larger question we're wrestling with in this hour is not about how Uh, The stress impacted Dr. King, but whether or not being black is making you sick. Our guest in this hour is the founder and CEO of Hurdle, Kevin Dedner. You're listening to Kevin on KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. Good thing we've got three hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. KBLA Talk 1580 is growing at a phenomenal pace, and we need to enlarge our territory. We are seeking smart, creative solution providers to join the KBLA delegation and go higher with us. If you or someone you know is interested in joining our team as a brand manager, go to our website at KBLA1580.com. Tap on employment opportunities and let us hear from you. We're not looking for everybody or just anybody, but you could be that special somebody. Come grow with us. We're KBLA Talk. 1580. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift the Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. We continue now uh, our conversation with Kevin Dedner, the founder and CEO of Hurdle, uh, who has been on a mission uh, for some years now, exploring and wrestling with this troubling question, uh, trying to shine uh, a light on how it is the ways in which, I should say, being black makes us sick in this country. Uh, Before we get to that question more broadly, let me come back to this other issue you raised a few moments ago, Kevin, and that is this notion of black men. You talked about Dr. King. Uh, You shared a bit about your own personal story. I could do the same if we had the time. Uh, But why is it that black men seem to internalize this in ways that others do not? When I say this, I mean the trauma, the oppression. Why is it that we internalize this in ways um, that others apparently do not? Well, I, you know, I think it's um, loaded from the very time that we're we're kids. We're taught that we that men don't cry, um, you know, that that we we don't have emotions, and so that means that we walk around holding our emotions in. And you know, up until Tavis, really, just maybe two three years ago, after the murder of George Floyd, the experiences that we were having, uh, many people didn't believe that we were having those experiences when we were walking through our daily lives. And so here you have it. We have all of these sort of small traumatic events. And research shows, by the way, that small, singular um, microaggressions 
over time become the equivalent of a traumatic event. So if you think about the experience of a black man just every day, you know, subject to being pulled over by the police, harassed by the po- police, microaggressions at the workplace, all those things ultimately take a toll on you. And when you're taught that not to, you know, share those emotions and process those emotions, it ultimately has an impact on your mental health. Mm. I'm thinking as you're talking, Kevin, about all of the black men, since you mentioned George Floyd, who we have seen uh, gunned down on videotape. So I'm thinking all of these stories, some videotape, some not, but I'm thinking George Floyd, I'm thinking Philando Castillo, I'm thinking Michael Brown, I'm thinking Trayvon Martin. Um, The list goes on and on and on. Uh, And some sisters on that list as well, Breonna Taylor and others, uh, Sandra Bland. But I'm thinking specifically, since we're talking about black men, I'm thinking specifically of all the videotape here in L.A., uh, in a week's time, three people, three people shot and killed by LAPD, another by the sheriff's department, um, most of them black. So, and that's all on videotape here in L.A. So we see this on videotape far too often. And I, I want to ask you this question, specifically given the work that the work and witness that you are engaged in. Do you think that all these videotapes and the, you know, the, the massive number of times these videotapes have been viewed the coverage on video has been viewed do you think that any of that any of that has done anything to humanize black men you got black men on tape begging for their mama in george floyd's case his mama's already dead one of the cases here in la uh, that i mentioned a moment ago uh, those three shootings on videotape in a week brother calling for his mama um does any of that on videotape do anything, has it done anything to humanize black men? Yeah, I I think we have reached this inflection point that really started with the murder of George Floyd that we began to to have some flesh put on our bones, that people began to recognize our humanity. But when you think about um, what is happening to black men, we're really talking about systemic problems, unfair and unjust systems that, that really you know, take a toll on us ultimately. But, I, you know, I think what we've experienced the last years, last several years, there's definitely uh, a new understanding of what it means to be a black man in America. But sadly, you know, fixing the systems is going to require a lot of hard work that is, you know, quite frankly, generational work for us. Yeah, it is generational work. But let me come back to this question one more time, though, because I'm really, what I'm really punching up here is that word humanize. Do you think that any of what we have witnessed, when you see black men so disregarded, so disrespected, the life literally snuffed, snatched out of them. Do you think in the in the eyes, in the minds, the heads, the hearts of everyday people in this country that that has done anything to put, you know, again, as you say, flesh on the bones, has it humanized us in any way in their eyes? And I, I raise that because it seems to me that black men may very well be the most maligned group of folk in the history of this country, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that they can't see their way into our humanity. They can't see their way into the dignity of black life, much less male black life. So I'm wondering, again, if any of that you think in the eyes of others outside of our community has has humanized us in any way. You know, I I don't think it's done it's, it's done what we would want it to. Okay. Because if, if it was, I think our conversation would be different. Got it. But are there, you know, people who, who now are paying attention? You know, I live in a, a community in Washington, D.C., and there's a small uh, church 
uh, near my neighborhood, and every Saturday morning, there's a congregation of older white folks who are standing, still standing out today, Tavis, with lives as signs that say Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that those folks have, have definitely come to understand what it means to be a black man in America a little bit better. But I think there's also some people who really just simply refuse to recognize our humanity. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's that's the large issue, that there are those who are refusing to recognize our humanity. So how do we, how do we, we again, we're going to get more deeply into how being black makes us sick uh, specifically in a moment here. I mean, you keep saying things that uh, keep making my brain just jump. Um, to the extent there are, and always have been, of course, people who refuse under any conditions to see, to respect, much less to revel and celebrate in our humanity. In this critical moment in America's history, how do we as a as a people, certainly as African-American men, navigate forward in a society where there are people, no matter what you do, who absolutely refuse to respect your humanity and your dignity? You know, I, I actually think, Tavis, that that first starts with this deep internal work. And, you know, when I think about the, the work that I try to do in the, the Joy of the Disinherited, I really wanted people to to do what Howard Thurman talked about, and that is to perform this delicate surgery of your psyche. So, Tavis, it's not simply just that there are people who refuse to recognize our humanity. It is that all of the messages that we're being sent, the half-truths in the world that tell us that we're less than humane. So only by doing that deep internal work, learning to sit still, processing your life experience, and processing your trauma, can you begin to really recognize who you are. Mm. And when you do that, by the way, you find that you are connected to the divine. Yeah, I, I love your, your invoking uh, Howard Thurman. Um, you can't do much better than Howard Thurman, right? Uh, I love, I love the, the, the name of the text, uh, your book, The Joy of the Disinherited, Essays on Trauma, Oppression, and Black Mental Health. Is it your assessment that the disinherited can find joy, can have joy? Oh, you know, you know, I, I really appreciate that question. Listen, there has always been joy there for the disinherited. You know, back, I'm from rural Arkansas, and my family used to sing about this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to oh, me, yeah. the world can't take it away. That's right. And that, that's the joy that we're talking about. And, you know, this, this, this construct of the disinherited, you know, Thurman talked about it in a way that, you know, it was the, the people whose society has put, their backs up against the wall, who are oppressed, left out of the mainstream. And this is the term that he used to describe black people and their precarious relationship in the United States. And, you know, I I think that that definition still stands today. But as I implied in the title of the book, there is joy that no one can take away from us that we have. Mm. Um, and and where do black folk go to find that joy? I mean, writ large, because I, I make a distinction and I think you'll take my point between joy and happiness. Happiness is ephemeral. It sort of comes and goes, right? Um, but what you want to do is to find joy in your work and your witness, find joy in living a life and leaving a legacy. And getting to joy is a whole lot easier than getting to some sort of temporal happiness. So they're not exactly the same thing. But where do black folk go to find joy? Well, it, you know, I would, I'd go back to where I started. I think that the joy comes first from doing the deep internal work. And when you sit still, learn to, you know, we, we, you know, I come from a community where we learned to pray, but we didn't learn to meditate. Mm. Meditating is simply sitting still and waiting on God to, 
to talk to you. And I think when you do that, you find that you are connected to the divine. You find that you have power, that you have purpose. And that's, that's where that joy stems from, because you realize that somewhere there's a God that loves you, that has created you with purpose. And I think that that's the story of the disinherited. Yeah. So what are the ways? We'll start this and continue. I've got news, traffic, and sports in a few minutes here, but let me get this conversation started in this regard, and we'll move uh, on the other side uh, where the spirit takes us, <laughs> if, if I can put it that way. <laughs> I can uh, that. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to build on your frame. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so what, what are the ways in which being black, just being black, makes us sick? Yeah, well— you know, number one, Tab, it's like we, we, just our daily lives, if you think of how our communities are formed, like you think of the impact of redlining, you think of the impact of uh, our education system, how that puts us at a disadvantage, all of these things ultimately, you know, ultimately produce poor health outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and all of this ultimately, like you, I, I love that you, you connected the fact that Dr. King had age to, although he was 39 years old, he was the age of a 60-year-old man. Mm-hmm. By the way, a black man's life expectancy is only 65 even today. That's right. And, you know, we have this saying in our community that black don't crack. Well, you know, I often say to folks, really, that is a, a lie, because the truth is that our, our, because of the daily stress and pressure that we experience, our blood's moving much faster during our, through our veins, which means our organs are overworking. We're always sort of in this fight mode, and that takes a, a negative impact on our health. And ultimately, you know, there, there's been research that even shows that for black men in particular, that, you know, our hearts working like this um, from, from the stress um, makes us much sicker, more susceptible to cardiovascular disease. So, you know, the stress of being, I'm simply arguing, Tavis, has a negative impact not only on our physical health, but our mental health. Mm. Kevin Dedner is the founder and CEO of Hurdle. I said Huddle earlier, watching too much football yesterday, right? <laughs> <laughs> the company is called a Hurdle. Uh, his debut text is called The Joy of the Disinherited, Essays on Trauma, Oppression, and Black Mental Health. Uh, really just getting started in this conversation. So much more to unpack uh, vis-a-vis his text and conversations about uh, how being black in this society uh, just makes us sick on demand. We'll continue that conversation when we come forward with Kevin Dedner. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. Uh, our guest in this hour is Kevin Dedner, the founder and CEO of Hurdle. His book, powerful text, is called The Joy of the Disinherited. The Joy of the Disinherited. Fred Hammond fits in quite nicely uh, with that title. Uh, The Joy of the Disinherited, Essays on Trauma, Oppression, and Black Mental Health. I want to read something to you, Kevin, as we listen to Fred Hammond in the background here. Uh, Read something, Kevin, that came from one of our listeners. I'm always getting stuff throughout the hour, and sometimes I have time to weave it in, sometimes I don't. But listen to this. Tavis, I think the repeated viewing and distribution of those videos actually does the opposite because it desensitizes you to the violence toward black bodies the more you see it, the more it becomes a new norm. You go into autopilot essentially when you see it. It just is what it is. So 
I think that the pendulum in this case has swung so far in the opposite direction that even something that you would think would be for good has not been. The example that comes to mind is uh, Dr. King's decision to use young people to march. And when America saw those hoses and dogs being sicked on those children uh, on television, um, it had a certain impact on them. I imagine that the first time they saw somebody being lynched back in the day, they were shocked. But after a couple lynchings, you good. Think about it. Parents took their children to these lynchings not to humanize the suffering of black people, but to get their children desensitized to the kind of violence toward black bodies, and they grew up accepting it. Kevin Dedner, your thoughts. Wow, I, I tell you, I, you know, first of all, to the person who shared their thoughts, I really appreciate that. Um, you, you know, I, I, I think that that is true, but I do think that, you know, the inflection point we had at the murder of George Floyd has caused some policy discussions that we would not have had before. Um, but I, I do think that this notion of desynthesizing um, is true, that that, that that could be happening. Mm. And what is to be done about that? If, 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 if these people, uh, these persons, watching these videos over and over again uh, are not, as I asked you earlier, finding a way into respect and revel in the humanity and dignity of black people, but they are becoming desensitized to it. For that matter, black folk may be desensitized to saying these things. I, as I've said many times on this program, I can't watch the George Floyd video. I just can't watch it. I saw it yeah. a couple of times and I can't watch it because when that brother starts calling for his mama, I mean, you have to be in a particular space and place when you know your mama is dead and you are in such a situation that you call it on your mama who's long been deceased, I can't imagine what that might feel like. Now, I know how much I love my mother, probably listening right now, love her dearly. And somebody once asked me, um, if you were about to die uh, imminently, what is the last voice you'd want to hear? And for me, it was simple. My mama. I want to hear my mama's voice uh, if this is the last moment I have to breathe let me hear my mama's soothing voice my mama telling me she loves me one more again that would be the choice for me simple straightforward um hard stop um but when i hear him calling for his mama he just does something to me but again if people watching these videos are being desensitized rather than finding a way into our humanity and dignity yeah i'm i'm not sure how to process that kevin doesn't yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very tough question. I think it really calls on all of us to figure out, like, what role do we play in the work that we have to do? I think that there's policy and systems change that definitely has to happen. People have to be in city councils meetings and state house meetings and certainly even lobbying at the federal level for policy change. But, you know, the, the role that I've tried to take, Tavis, you know, more recently in my career is really helping people, you know, come to terms with and recognize their own humanity. Mm. Um, and, you know, picking up on the theme that we, we just left with, with joy is when you do that, it puts you in a completely different state of mind. Um, you know, we're not going to change um, 
America, as, as you you know, you've been saying the last few days, America is it's not a democracy; it's an experiment in democracy, mm-hmm. right? Um, we're we're not going to change that overnight, but I do think that you know the systems work should be done. But then there should be some of us who really try to begin this work on what it means to do the generational healing, the healing of the historical trauma that we've experienced collectively. Like, what does that look like for black people to heal from these deep wounds? And also, when I say that, I also want to recognize that every time we come very close to healing a wound, another wound is opened up. So this, this work for us is continuous, and, and but it's work that we must do if we want to really uh, live a joyful life. I want to come back to that notion of uh, why why one wound opens every time we heal one. Put a pin in that just for a second. Um, let me just pivot ever so gently here. Um, as you know, uh, Kevin, and the audience certainly knows, I have been fortunate in my career, blessed in my career to work uh, with a number of networks. And I've been fortunate over the course of my career, uh, I've gotten accustomed to having smart audiences. Uh, when you're on NPR and PBS and public media and the like you get used to having and you're on a regular on meet the press and all the things I've been blessed to do in my career you get used to talking to smart people when we started this station uh, our second anniversary will be Juneteenth of this year so we're not quite two years old when we started this black owned and black operated talk radio station my prayer and my hope was that we would cultivate a smart audience and that we'd find, uh, cultivate an audience that wanted to be empowered and enlightened and encouraged not that Tavis per se has a monopoly on the truth. I know, I know there's the truth and there's the way to the truth. And I'm not uh, arrogant enough to think that I got a monopoly on the truth, but I wanted uh, to cultivate the smartest black talk radio audience in the country. And uh, I think we've done that in a year and a half. And I, I say that because I look at all the kinds of comments and questions that uh, come to me every day and my colleagues here on this station, the kind of conversations that we curate. So here's another comment that, that one I shared before was mind boggling. So listen to this one. These are the kind of comments my listeners make to me every day. Tavis, there's a 35-year difference in life expectancy. Listen to this, y'all. This is, this is powerful. There's a 35-year difference in life expectancy between the healthiest and wealthiest and the poorest and sickest neighborhoods in America. For example, 30 blocks apart, 30 blocks apart in New York City, life expectancy of people in Harlem is 10 years less than those living on the Upper East Side, 30 blocks apart, a 10-year difference in life expectancy. Here in Los Angeles, 16 years of life expectancy vanish along a short stretch of the 405 freeway. Now, this is stuff coming to me not from my, my researchers, but from my listeners. Uh, I love I love having a smart audience, man. That's who you're talking to, brother. You should know that. Um, so they will be impacted by the joy of the disinherited essays on trauma, oppression, and black mental health. But what do you make of that particular comment about life expectancy and the difference, uh, you know, in 30 blocks apart in New York City and, uh, you know, a, a short stretch of the 405 here in L.A.? So East Coast, West Coast, it don't matter. In certain pockets, in certain neighborhoods, you can go a few blocks this way, a few blocks that way, and the life expectancy can be as wide as 10 years, Kevin Denton. Yeah. Tavis, you know, the the undoing of racism in the housing system and the education system and the transportation system, I called it generational work uh, a few moments ago. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just even hearing those stats and that quote, you know, it, it makes you realize how how difficult this work will be over time. And, and, you know, and I would just say, Tavis, that none of this is accidental. 
These outcomes are not accidental. Like when you think about um, American cities, and I talk about this in my in my book. I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. We once had a thriving business district. We called it, you know, our Harlem. It was it was called Ninth Street in Little Rock. Mm-hmm. But when the transportation system was put uh, in America, laid out, it came through the heart of Ninth Street and wiped out that economic opportunity for 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 African American families in Little Rock, Arkansas. That didn't just happen in, in Little Rock. That happened in, in urban um, centers all over the country where black businesses were, districts were destroyed. And so, you know, one of the things I try to do in the book is articulate how these systemic decisions that were made, like not only do they have they sort of depressed us economically, but they depress our health, uh, they depress our mental health as well, and produce these you know, terrible poor health outcomes for African-Americans. Great deal more to talk about with Kevin Dedner when we come forward, including getting back to this point he made a moment ago that we, uh, when we do the work to heal one wound, another one seems to open up. We'll get his take on why he said that, and what he meant by that, number one. And then we're going to ask him more expressly the link as he sees it between trauma, oppression, and black mental health. What is the link between those three things? His book is called The Joy of the Disinherited, Essays on Trauma, Oppression and Black Mental Health. You're listening to Kevin Dedner on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. We're talking in this hour about the joy of the disinherited. Essays on trauma, oppression, and black mental health. Love, love, love that title. The joy of the disinherited. That's the sound. Walter Hawkins. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for me. Uh, So we are the disinherited, and yet we find a way uh, to enter into spaces of joy even with the navigate, even with the uh, lives that we have to navigate with this melanin in our skin, so we're talking once again about the joy that is inherited. It's the new book uh, by Kevin Dedner, who's the founder and CEO of Hurdle. Uh, Kevin, a moment ago you talked about uh, the fact that when we do the work and witness of healing wounds, we heal one another. Opens up. What do you mean by that? Well, it's you know just as you you you've done the work, Tavis, you'll turn on the news and and you'll hear of another shooting. Mm. Or, or you may be driving down the street and the lights will turn on behind you, and then you, you sort of go right back to where you started. So, you know, I think the healing is a continuous process for, for black people in America because you're, there's always these constant reminders of, of who you are and how you fit into society. So it, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's not as if you can do the work and you're done. It is, yeah. a, it is a commitment. Yeah. A long commitment. Yeah. How you fit in society or how you don't fit in society, to be more exact. Uh, but Absolutely, because yeah. we're taught we don't. Yeah, exactly. I take your point, brother. Um, what is the link? Your subtitle is called Essays on Trauma, Oppression, and Black Mental Health. You could spend hours just answering this one question, but in the few moments that we have left in this hour, what is the link between those three things as you write about in the text, trauma, oppression, and black mental health? Well, Tavis, you know, I opened the book talking a lot about the death of my father, who died uh, an inelegant death. Mm-hmm. Um, he died from a cocaine-induced brain aneurysm. And, you know, but when I began to understand addiction, I, I, I learned that addiction, most addiction is connected to unresolved trauma. Uh, and so, you know, this, this link between trauma, oppression, and black mental health, it's like we were oppressed, we've experienced trauma. And when we don't heal of our trauma, we're likely to pass it on. 
so the the book for me was a uh, it was actually a tool writing it was a, a tool to heal from my own trauma so that I wouldn't pass it on to my children as well. Mm. Maya Angelou uh, put it this way, I'll never forget her saying this to me many years ago in one of our private conversations, and it's been published since then. Uh, but Maya put it this way, Kevin, that processing pain without perpetuating pain is rough business. Processing yeah. pain without perpetuating pain is rough business, and Kevin Dedner did not want to pass on that pain to his children. His book is called The Joy of the Disinherited, Essays on Trauma, oppression and black mental health in our remaining moments with him. I want to ask him uh, directly and expressly about the work of hurdle. You're listening to Kevin Dedner on KBLA talk 1580 interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA talk 1580. Let's get back to Kevin Dedner on KBLA talk 1580 in the three minutes I have left in this hour. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of hurdle. We've been talking in this hour mostly about his book and all things connected to the new text. It is his debut uh, book. So congratulations on the debut. I remember my very first one and that first one's a big deal. Uh, I know from you, Kevin Detter, there'll be many more to come, but, uh, congratulations, my friend on your very first book. It's called the joy of the disinherited essays on trauma, oppression, and black mental health. And, uh, he couldn't come out the blocks any stronger than this. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, here's the exit question, at least one of the exit questions. Um, tell me about the, the work of hurdle. Well, Tavis, you know, I, I will tell you, I experienced depression myself, saw three therapists before I could find a therapist that I could connect with, and my experience is not unique. Fifty percent of ethnic minorities terminate therapy prematurely because of the lack of provider fit. And one of the things that we say at Hurdle is that it's time to face a hard truth, and that is that the mental health care system as we know it was not designed for everyone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we're doing is reimagining the mental health. We train our therapists in an evidence-based technique that helps them develop more cultural humility and responsiveness, allowing them to connect quicker and faster to their, their patients. Mm, I'm glad you're there. That could not be more important work. Um, let me just ask whether or not it is your assessment that we are making progress in that regard, uh, getting um, uh, a proper provider fit, uh, getting culturally competent care, because I think you're right. And I know this from inside my own world. You know the data. Um, you decided that the data is incontrovertible in this regard. But I just know it from from exper from experimentation and from relationships with people that I know who, you know, stop seeing a therapist or try different therapists, particularly for parents. I'm, I'm talking right now to some folk who I know are listening, parents who are trying to find help, <clears throat> trying to find help for their kids, black kids, trying to find the appropriate therapist for their kids, and they can't even do that. Uh, I'm glad you're there doing the work and witness to change that narrative, but I'll be making progress in that regard across the country. I think we're making progress, Tavis, but again, this is generational work. Less than 4% of the therapists in the country are people of color. Mm. So the, the idea that we can fix this overnight simply isn't, it, it's, just, it's just not possible. But, you know, we, we, we have also seen, by the way, the largest increase in treatment-seeking behavior among African Americans that we've ever seen in the last two years. Yeah. It was something about the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd that really pushed black people to a place that they said, you know, I guess I will try therapy. Yeah. So, you know, there's lots of work for us to do here, but we are making good progress. We've only got 45 seconds left, but this is the, the real exit question. <laughs> I lied three times already. Uh, but the real exit question, given that your book is called The Joy of the Disinherited, uh, these days, how are you, Kevin Dedner, sustaining your hope? 
I'm incredibly optimistic. I think, you know, I, I would say, Tavis, everybody listening should have a, a self-care kit, make, ter- make sure they're taking good care of themselves, eating good food, eight hours of sleep a night, good healthy relationships, spending time outdoors and exercising. Those are some quick tips of things that people should be doing to make sure that they can find their joy, too. Mm, we can all find our joy. It's a, it's a journey. Uh, it's a journey to joy, but you can get there. He's the founder and CEO of Hurdle. His debut book is called The Joy of the Disinherited, Essays on Trauma, Oppression, and Black Mental Health. He is Kevin Detner. Kevin, good to have you on the program. Once again, congratulations and all the best to you, my friend. It's been my delight. Thank you, Tavis. Pleasure's all mine. More of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic, and sports. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580.